WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The Hudsucker Proxy was the first big-budget feature film for the Coen brothers, and it was a massive Hollywood flop. According to The Atlantic, the movie was the largest flop of the Coen's career, making less than $3 million in domestic box office against a reported budget of around $40 million. Despite its mixed critical reviews, the 1994 film, shot on Wilmington sound stages, has earned a cult following. The Hudsucker Proxy was an important filmmaking experience for set decorator Matt Sullivan. Several years after film school at Penn State, he landed a job on the production as on-set dresser. Although he's gone on to build an impressive TV and film resume, he insists that 30 years later that movie is still the best filmmaking experience of his career. Matt Sullivan's credits include the TV series Dawson's Creek, One Tree Hill, Sleepy Hollow, and Mr. Mercedes. He was the set decorator for feature films such as Flight of the Phoenix and Halloween Kills, and he joins me now. Matt Sullivan, welcome to Coastline. Thank you, Rachel. Glad to be here. Good to have you with us. Thanks. There is a free screening of The Hudsucker Proxy later this month on Sunday, July 17th at 4 p.m. at the Point 14 in Wilmington, courtesy of the North Carolina Filmmaker Series. Matt Sullivan will answer questions from the audience after the film. I will. You live in Wilmington, North Carolina. You've lived here for a few decades now. One of the first films that made a huge impression on you as a child was the movie Jaws. Watching that film was one of the factors that set you on this career track. Do you swim in the ocean here? <laughs> I do. I do, uh, as often as possible. Uh, I have no fear of sharks, despite my love for that movie. In fact, I love sharks. Well, talk a little bit about how and why that movie made such an impression on you as a kid. You, because you saw it, didn't you, more than a dozen times or something? I did. I, I saw it uh, just about every weekend of the summer of 1975 when it came out. Um, I was just mesmerized by that film. Um, it just struck a chord in me, the the amazing action, the tension, the emotion that a film could make you feel. I mean, from fear to laughter. I mean, there were there's some very funny parts of that movie as well. Um, and it just overwhelmed me. It just, I could not get enough of it. And, you know, I went as often as I could, probably at least 10 times over that summer. Um, What's your favorite scene from the film Jaws? Oh, there's so many, but um, I think I think it, it used to be the scene on the beach when Sheriff Brody is sitting watching the waterline and the young boy gets attacked on the float and there's a shot that's very Hitchcockian where the camera pushes in on uh, the sheriff, as well as the lens sort of uh, telephotos out. So it's a compression of the picture and very unsettling moment. And you see the blood spouting in the water. And it's just 
a very graphic, visceral moment of sheer panic and terror. And that has always been one of my very favorite moments in film overall. But in later years, um, the scene at night on the boat, once they're after the shark, uh, Quint, um, the Richard Dreyfus character, and uh, the sheriff, and they start telling stories while they're getting drunk and singing songs. And then uh, Robert Shaw's Quint tells the story of the USS Indianapolis and the men going into the water and very few of them coming out. That is such a gripping, impossible scene to look away from. Uh, I think now that's my favorite. Yeah. Going back to the Hudsucker Proxy, the the most important filmmaking experience of your career, or I should say enjoyable. This Probably both. Wow. Well, why why do you consider it all these years later? You know, you've risen in the ranks. You're set decorator now, and I'm we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of what that means versus what you were doing back then as on-set dresser, but it's a, you know, it's a, a big rise in rank. You have all of sure. these other credits under your belt. Why do you still call that the most important experience? Well, because of the situation and the people involved. Um, the Cohen brothers, in my mind, are some of, if not the best filmmakers working still today. Um, although they were at the beginning of their career then, I guess they'd shot maybe three films previously. Um, but they were still just the smartest, most creative folks I had ever worked with. And they remain the smartest, most creative folks I've ever worked with. I mean, I've worked with a lot of people, but they were so in tune with their story. Uh, they could answer questions weeks in advance about which way a door should open or what position the artwork needed to be in on the wall. And they just knew everything about their story and made sure that everyone working on it did as well. So let's, for those folks who haven't seen it, let's set this up a little bit, that the conflict emerges in this film when the film's namesake, and this is right away, Waring Hudsucker, who's president of the company, also its founder, commits suicide. He jumps out of the window on the 45th floor. Not counting the mezzanine. There is a debate in the film among the characters over whether he fell 45 floors or 44 floors. It's, <laughs> yes. yes, part of the, the humor. So we have a clip here. And what we're going to hear in this clip is after he's jumped out of the window, the ensuing board meeting when the officers are deciding what to do because they are under the impression that his stock shares must now be sold to the public. But they want to retain control of the company. So what we hear is their plan to depress the stock shares so they can afford to purchase them and keep a controlling interest. Let's listen. Do you mean to say that any slob in a smelly T-shirt will be able to buy Hudsucker stock? The, the company bylaws are quite clear. My God, you're animals. How could you discuss his stock when the man has just left 45 floors? 44. Not counting the mezzanine. Quit showboating, Addison. The man is gone. The question now is whether we're going to let John Q. Public just waltz in here and buy our company. What are you suggesting, Sidney? 
Certainly, we can't afford to buy a controlling interest. Now, while the stock is this strong, how soon before Hud's paper hits the market? January 1st. 30 days. Four weeks. A month at the most. One month to make the blue chip investment of the century look like a round trip ticket on the Titanic. We play up the fact that Hud is dead. Long live We depress the stock to the point where we can buy 50%. 51? Not counting the mezzanine. It could work. It should work. It would work. It's working already. Wearing Hudsucker's abstract art on Madison Avenue. What we need now is a new president who will inspire panic in the stockholder. A puppet. A proxy. A pawn. Sure, sure. Some jerk we can really push around. And that was Paul Newman's voice that we heard playing Musburger, uh, the uh, sort of devious uh, schemer after the CEO's death. Yes. Uh, so this this scene takes place in the boardroom. Can you talk about the boardroom and how that came together, what that looked like? Even the table was impressive. Yes. Um, that is an extremely impressive set um, in a long line of impressive sets that are in the film. Um, the production designer was a man named Dennis Gassner, who is world-renowned Oscar winner, uh, amazing designer who's done so many countless wonderful movies. Um, and the set decorator was Nancy Haig, who works with Dennis often and is also world-class, just one of the best decorators on the planet. Um, that set was designed, of course, by, by Dennis, and the table was built by our local construction folks here in town and uh, got an automotive finish to the tabletop uh, with the HUD logo in the center. Um, and it was so massive that the set actually had to be built around the table. The table was, the carpet was put in, the table was positioned, and then the set was built around it because it was so heavy and hard to move that they literally had to build around it. Do you remember roughly the size of the table? The rough dimensions? <sighs> it was probably about 35 feet long um, because as you now, uh, Charles Durning is wearing Hudsucker has to get a running start before he leaps out the window. And <laughs> <laughs> not that he ran fast because Charles is a, was a large man. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was kind of like a runway almost. And I think that was part of Dennis's design was to give it that feel. And as we were listening to that clip, you were chuckling at a lot of the lines. The lines are really tightly written. That's one of the sort of, I guess, style elements of this, the alliteration with the P's. Yeah. There was also, you know, lots of jokes about death, Hudsucker being abstract art. Right. Now. Yes. The, um, the Coens are known for their dialogue. They write some of the best in the business, and this film is just filled with snappy repartee. You're listening to Coastline. TV and film set decorator Matt Sullivan is my guest today. Later in the program, we'll find out about his weirdest job ever on a set. It involves 
uh, nipples and ice cubes. After this short break, we'll be right back. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Matt Sullivan, set decorator, has created the looks for sets ranging from iconic Wilmington television like One Tree Hill and Dawson's Creek to Sleepy Hollow to the horror film Halloween Kills starring Jamie Lee Curtis and the film The First Purge. But his favorite film job remains an early one in which he was on set dresser for the Coen Brothers film The Hudsucker Proxy. There is a free screening of the film later this month on Sunday, July 17th at 4 p.m. at the Point 14 in Wilmington, courtesy of the North Carolina Filmmakers Series. Matt Sullivan will answer questions after the film. In one of the early and memorable scenes in The Hudsucker Proxy, Norval Barnes, Tim Robbins' character, crawls across the floor to get to Paul Newman's desk. You had an interesting responsibility during this part of the shoot, but tell us, for what is this scene about? Why is Tim Robbins on the floor? Well, um, that is actually uh, something that I have to correct myself on. Um, it's not Norval Barnes that crawls across the fo- floor. It's actually Buzz, the elevator boy, who does the crawling. I and that's had, my mistake. I had I had misremembered uh, previously, but um, the all the I sets, mean Tim Robbins is on the floor he is, with his foot in a in a waste paper basket on fire, but that's a different scene. That's a different scene. Um, so okay, so he, so Buzz uh, elevator guy is crawling along the floor. Yes, uh, let me set that up just by saying that uh, part of Dennis Gassner, the production designer's amazing plan for the movie and the Coen brothers' uh, plan was that in all of the sets within the Hudsucker building, uh, all the executive offices, the carpet would remain pristine in every shot so that it would be a field of blank carpet that looked like it had just been laid and manicured. So part of my job as the onset dresser was to ensure that it always looked that way. I had a series of stiff brooms that I used once everything else was set up, the last final touches were done with makeup and hair and everybody else stepped out of the shot. Then I would go in and brush out all the footprints that were made by everybody working, including brushing, like sweeping myself out of the scene, taking my own (laughs) footprints out. Um, And all of that was done to set up the one scene where Buzz wakes up a hungover Norval and presents his, his big idea, which starts out looking very much like the hula hoop, which Norval invented. It turns out it's a, a bendy straw that uh, Buzz is trying to promote. He says, uh, now you don't have to drink like this. Now you can drink like this. <laughs> and 
<laughs> Norval hates the idea and fires Buzz. Buzz screams and falls on the floor and holds Norval's leg and pleads and cries for to get his job back. But Norval won't have it because at this point he's lost his way. And he sends Buzz out and Buzz crawls out of the office leaving hand and knee and shoe prints as he goes. So the, all that work to make the carpet look pristine the whole time was just to show Buzz's trail as he <laughs> screams and cries his way out of the office. <laughs> Such intentional style. So since you've opened this door now, uh, Buzz the Elevator Man is an important character in this film. Can you kind of describe for us, but we also have a clip of him, and you did a, a pretty fantastic impression of Buzz, <laughs> and we have to talk about that. But but describe first who Buzz is. Well, Buzz is the, the elevator operator in the mammoth Hudsucker building, and he's takes everybody up and down, uh, delivers them to their floor and always has a little joke to say about each person and where they're going. Uh, so he kind of befriends Norville and uh, calls him Buddy all the time whenever he sees him. And they have a, a little repartee, but they uh, have a falling out when when Buzz tries to present an idea to Norville and he's He's not ready to accept it. It's interesting. Yeah, Norval's character. I mean, he starts out as a pretty sincere, uh, reasonably ethical guy from Muncie, Indiana, and he winds up pulling the ladder up behind him. Yes. It, he, he goes from a, an imbecilic innocent uh, to a self-impressed lieabout who, you know— essentially ruins his own career and has a big fall but uh, manages to redeem himself because his heart truly is in the right place and with the love of a good woman and some clockwork magic and the help of an angel he <laughs> gets back on the top. <laughs> All right well let's listen to this scene with Buzz the elevator operator. Hey, buddy, my name's Buzz. I got the fuzz, I make the elevator do what she does. Hang it up to dry. What's your pleasure, buddy? 44. 44, the top brass floor. Say, buddy, what takes 50 years to get up to the top floor and 30 seconds to get down? Wearing Hudsucker. You get it, buddy? Say, buddy, Mr. Klein up to nine, Mrs. Dell, personnel, Mr. 1137. 36. Walk down. Ladies and gentlemen, please step to the rear. Here comes a gargantuan Mr. Greer. <laughs> Say, buddy, who's the most liquid businessman on the street? Wearing Hudsucker. Say, buddy, when is the sidewalk fully dressed? When it's wearing Hudsucker. <laughs> you get it, buddy? It's a pun. It's a knee slapper. It's a play on Jesus, Joseph, and Mary. Is that a blue letter? Crank the mighty white Chitala guy. Hold on, folks. We're expressed to the top floor. <laughs> And that's Buzz the Elevator Guy. Good from... luck, buddy. <laughs> You're going to need it. 
And that is Matt Sullivan, <laughs> who was on set dresser for the film The Hudsucker Proxy and is is now a set decorator for all kinds of productions, including the uh, current television series, Star Series, shooting in Wilmington called Hightown. You've said that on this set of The Hudsucker Proxy, you and the rest of the crew would belly laugh after some of the takes. But it's not really a laugh out loud kind of funny movie. Did When you watched it later, did you sort of get the disconnect? Because you you said at one point you thought it would be just a belly laugh from beginning to end. Yeah, when, when we were filming it, we all of us on the crew just thought it was going to be hilarious, that it was going to be one of the funniest movies ever made. Um, just the, the interactions between Norval and Buzz and uh, his crazy antics, especially in the scene you referenced earlier where he sets the waste can on fire and sticks his foot in it and then carries the water bottle all over the office, spilling it everywhere and blowing the contract out the window on Paul Newman. That's um, some real physical comedy, especially his staggering with the with the water. Yeah, carrying the water and spilling it all before it gets to the fire. Um, and it is funny in the movie, but it's somehow the film just like when we all saw it in theaters back in 94, it just didn't come across the same way that it did uh, when we were shooting it. Years later now, when I watch it, which I recently have, um, I appreciate it a lot more than I did in, in 94 as a film. Uh, I think uh, thematically it's it's very well put together and thought out. It's such a beautiful homage to the films of Howard Hawks and Preston Sturges and Frank Capra. Uh, I think the performances are just top-notch all the way through. Um, it's still not as funny as we all thought it was going to be, but it's poignant and it's deep, and I think it's it really is a gem, and I hope people will learn to embrace it over time. It has developed its own kind of cult following, but when it came out in 94, Roger Ebert praised a lot of the visuals, the production design, the scale model work, which we need to talk about, the painting, cinematography characters. But the problem with the movie is that it's all surface and no substance, he wrote. Not even the slightest attempt is made to suggest the film takes its own story seriously. Everything is style. The performances seem deliberately angled as satire. And then a critic with the Washington Post described the film as being pointlessly flashy, and compulsively overloaded with references to films of the 1930s, missing in this film's performances a sense of humanity, the crucial ingredient in the movie's Hudsucker is clearly trying to evoke. Hudsucker isn't the real thing at all. It's just a proxy. John Simon of the National Review described it as asinine and insufferable. But (laughs) James, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Berardinelli, gave a largely positive review. It skewers big business on the same shaft that Robert Altman ran Hollywood through with The Player, from the Brazil-like scenes in the cavernous mailroom to the convoluted machinations in the boardroom, pure satire of the nastiest and most enjoyable sort. Do you think people at the time didn't quite get it? Did they miss it? I do. I I do believe that's true. I think 
the fact that it looked like such an old movie but had such a kind of sarcastic modern tone uh, underlying the sweetness. It just – people didn't know how to take it and they didn't recommend it to each other because they couldn't really understand what it was trying to be. Uh, even those of us that worked on it, like I say, we had a little disconnect because we thought it was going to be hilarious and then it was it was satire and it just didn't seem to connect to us or the audience in the way that it was intended. Um, I think, you know, people at that time were used to the Mel Brooks sort of satire realm where things were much broader in their satirization, things like Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. Um, and this was more nuanced and subtle, despite the reviews that said it was just outlandish. I, I, th I think it was more subtle and almost took itself too seriously uh, to connect with audiences at the time. Now, you've said that w one of the main reasons this was the best filmmaking experience of your life is the, the deep level of organization and absolute clarity about what was going to happen on the film set each day. And there, there's this old saying, it's become a joke, even gets used a lot as a cultural reference point, a trope. We can fix it in post. <laughs> and you you hate that idea. Why? Because I think it's lazy. Uh, I think if you enter your day or your shoot as a whole figuring that you're going to fix any mistakes in post, it's a lazy approach to shooting the picture. Um, and that's certainly not something that the Coens ever subscribed to. Uh, Joel and Ethan fixed everything in prep. And they prepped their entire shoot t down to the final details. And every unit, and there were multiple units on this production, you know, the main unit that we were shooting the actors, but... There was a model unit and a blue screen unit and a, just a straight second unit. Um, every single one of the units had storyboards to go by every day that showed exactly what was expected to be produced that day. And so each day we came in, there was a, a placard with the different various shots that we were going to use to complete the scene. And we shot those without question. And when we were finished, we went home. Does that ever happen today? It does not. Ever? Um, almost never. Um, I've, I've never experienced it at that level again. And uh, there's very few people that even use storyboards anymore. Um, and th one, one thing about that, though, is not to say that the Coens were so meticulous that they didn't allow for improvisation because they did. They knew exactly what they wanted and how to get it, but they were also open to the genius moment and the 
off-the-cuff thing that might occur. So they captured both, everything they knew they needed and the bonus things that came up. It's easy, I think, for a lot of people to understand those ad-libbed, off-the-cuff moments with actors. Can that happen in other ways on a Coen Brothers production with the way you get a shot or with somebody in the set decoration department? Does that ever happen? Uh, Within reason, yes. Um, You know, somebody might have a suggestion to, you know, enhance the shot by, you know, visually by adding an element or moving something that typically wouldn't have been in the shot into it. Um, Things, one thing that... uh, I did as far as the sweeping of the carpet was to build a rig that um, we we did a lot of dolly shots, which and the dolly is the the piece of equipment that the camera mounts to that has wheels and is pushed by a dolly grip to transport the camera through the scene and change the angle as it moves. Well, we did a long tracking shot pulling away from Musburger's desk. And as the dolly was rolling out, we were seeing the wheel tracks in that brushed out carpet. And so I made a rig with my brooms to ease down, kind of of cantilever above the wheels and brush out the tracks as we pulled away from the desk. There was something else that uh, people will see with that is the result of you. So let's just listen to this clip that's mostly sound. It starts with, it's a montage of music, laughter, and stock ticker sounds. So in this shot, and in many others, the the stock ticker is almost its own character in the film. How did that work, and what did you do with it? Well, uh, the stock ticker, there were several of them. I believe there's one in uh, Norville's office and one in uh, the boardroom and one in uh, Musburger's office. Um, And they were very finicky machines. One of them, as I recall, worked uh, via a hand crank that was hidden in the pedestal beneath. Um, And whenever that one was working, it was me crouched down beside the pedestal running the hand crank to make the ticker tape come out. The other ones were finicky as well, although they were automatic. There was a switch that I would turn to make it tick but there was only so much tape on them and if the tape ticked out it was a long reset to get the tape back on so there was a lot of uh nick of time switching on and off and we could run them in reverse to to get the tape back into the machine too so uh, we handled that a lot (laughs) 
You're listening to Coastline TV and film set decorator Matt Sullivan is my guest today. When we come back from this short break, more about his television career, that very weird job he had on the set of Dracula's Widow. We'll be right back. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Matt Sullivan is a TV and film set decorator. His TV credits include One Tree Hill, Dawson's Creek, Sleepy Hollow, and the current Stars production shooting in Wilmington, Hightown. And while he served as department head on major feature films, including Halloween Kills, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, and The First Purge, his favorite filmmaking experience remains the Coen Brothers film, The Hudsucker Proxy. There is a free screening of the film later this month on Sunday, July 17th at 4 p.m. at the Point 14 in Wilmington, courtesy of the North Carolina Filmmakers Series. Matt Sullivan will answer questions from the audience after the film. We have to talk about One Tree Hill. One Tree Hill still all these years later, drives tourism to the Cape Fear region. It's iconic. It does. And I think I have not really <clears throat> grasped how deeply iconic this particular TV series was and, and is. I found a podcast that you'd done with a, the host sounded like he was from England. He was. And... It's a it's a thing all around the world. It truly is. Uh, One Tree Hill lives on just as strongly as it ever did when it was on the air. Um, people just love that show, and new generations have found it and just live and die by it in the same way that young people did when it first aired. Um, Go down to the 4th Street Bridge and you'll see that's it's referred to as the One Tree Hill Bridge. And there's countless people have signed their names and written quotes about One Tree Hill and, you know, di- lines of dialogue from the show. Uh, it's probably a month or six weeks doesn't go by that somebody doesn't email me having found either through the – IMDB or some somehow found out that I was a set decorator for the show and they contact me saying they love the show, they love my work, they where did I get this baby crib for Brooke or where did the um, you know where the neons from Trick come from? It's just I mean people will not let go of that show and this this a few months back. Uh, a guy named Simon from London uh, contacted me to be on his podcast where he and another cohort of his are watching the entire series episode by episode and doing a podcast about each one. Um, and he had me on to just elaborate on the sets for One Tree Hill and what the experience was like and 
I mean, he had endless questions. He did. And while he was very professional, he could not conceal the excitement and enthusiasm that was just coming out of his pores. It was tangible listening to it. I mean, he was a really serious fan. So you mentioned a baby crib. You mentioned neons. What are some of the other uh, elements of that show that you really put the mark on that really came from you? (laughs) Well, um, I don't know other than the just complete saturation of twinkle lights <laughs> in <laughs> in trees and around window panes and fences and that fourth street bridge I mentioned we once did a twinkle light uh, effort on the fourth street bridge and you could see it I swear you could see it from space it had so many twinkle lights on it. So you're the twinkle light guy. Yeah. I mean, this is not just One Tree Hill. This was a cultural shift. Twinkle <laughs> lights became a thing. They're now on Amazon as design ideas. I yeah. mean, so that was you, Matt <laughs> that, Sullivan. That, well, I don't know that I can take full credit <laughs> for it. But, uh, yeah, that's we did more twinkle lighting. We We got to the point where we started developing uh, backpacks of lattice work that the actors could wear just so there would always be twinkle lights behind them. I mean, we never got the directors or the producers to let us to sign off on that, but they just wanted twinkle lights in every shot once they got enamored with them. So that's probably my biggest influence on the show. That Well, it's huge because, again, it's that's across uh, – that's beyond television production. That's 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 cultural. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I can imagine then what my nickname for you would be. But apparently crew members have nicknames on sets. They do. That's that's a thing. So what, what's yours? Well – are you allowed to say it, or is it is it a super secret kind of thing? I don't. I'm not quite sure what my nickname is. Um, I. I mean, people call me Travis uh, back in my hometown, but I'm not. I'm not sure I know what you're going for with oh, my nickname. Okay. What is my nickname? I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's Travis. I thought <laughs> <laughs> I thought crew people had nicknames on set. That that was a relatively common thing. Oh, well, um, it, I mean, for some, there. I mean, there are many who do. Um, I have a very close friend named Polar Bear, uh, uh, another f- very good friend named Moose. Uh, and this has nothing to do with cosplay. It's just their no, nickname no, on set. Just, Polar Bear's name comes from the fact that he will surf uh, without a wetsuit in freezing cold water. Wow. Um, And Moose is just a very large man who uh, embodies a moose. Um, Okay. Well, that makes sense. So I want to go back to how you developed as a filmmaker and and all of these – different potential creative directions that you have because we're talking about you and describing you as a set decorator but you have acting chops you write um 
you made movies as a kid with your dad's Super 8 camera, and as an adult, you wrote a screenplay, V-Rex, about a video game designer that creates a realistic virtual pet for a son. And this, and uh, so a lot of people write screenplays, but yours almost got made. Almost did. You were so close. close. I was. um, With big names. Yes. um, The script you referenced, uh, V-Rex, which is in fact about a, a video game designer that creates a incredibly realistic virtual pet for his uh, fiance's son. Uh, it got a lot of uh, play. I was doing a, another film with Jamie Lee Curtis, actually, um, a film called Virus. And I was working with uh, a producer as well, a guy named Graham Place, who interestingly enough, had also been a producer on the Hudsucker Proxy. Um, That's where I first met Graham. Um, And then during Virus, I showed this script to both Graham and Jamie, and they both loved it. And Graham passed it on to another one of his partners, uh, director Barry Sonnenfeld, who was extremely hot at the time, still is. I mean, Barry's an amazing talent. Uh, but he was fresh off of Men in Black and probably the hottest director in all of Hollywood. And he liked my script, and he wanted to produce it. Um, I don't think he was going to direct it, but he was going to put it on his producing slate because he had just signed a giant deal with Disney to to make – 10 pictures, and my film was right up the Disney alley. I mean, it's a template for a Disney movie. Um, But for whatever reason, despite the buzz and the connection, uh, Disney said no, and they killed the project. And so we didn't get to make the movie. Um, as much as it seemed like we would. Yeah, and it's just hard to imagine that something can can get so far along in terms of development and interest from big names like Barry Sonnenfeld and Jamie Lee Curtis and just then sputter. Yeah. Can you talk about... it happens all the time. Right. Even the Coen brothers have tons of films that they intended to make. Right. But have fallen apart for one reason or another. So thinking about some of the younger upcoming filmmakers, what are some of those tricky moments in the development of a a screenplay or a a project that, you know, you you can, it seems like you've got all kinds of momentum and then it can just go off a cliff? Yeah, it's, it's just, it's very difficult to navigate. Um, and it never happens exactly the same way twice. It's, you know, getting your first screenplay sold or picture made is really like lightning in a bottle and trying to capture it because there's so many different ways that it can fall apart, so many different people whose sole job is to say no Um you know, there's like there the health insurance industry. 
Yeah, yeah, very similar. Um, they just don't want to step out and do anything that hasn't been done before or doesn't have a strong in, built-in audience. Um, there's just a, an industry of people that that say no and push back against unless you have uh, a proven track record and you've done it multiple times before people just don't want to get in business with you because there is so much risk involved financially um, so it's it's easier for them to make a, a sequel or a remake than it is to make anything that hints of originality although that is I mean, with streaming these days, I, th I feel like that has changed to a degree because, number one, there's such a, a sheer volume of product necessary to fuel all these streaming services. So they are starting to step out a little bit more. Um, but as a result, there's so much more competition. Like, everyone has a screenplay, and there are just thousands of them in the ether um, but that track record thing and the, the, the idea that your project has uh, a home already because of its subject matter or whatnot was very frustrating in the case of V-Rex because it read like a Disney movie and people who did read it felt like it was something they were watching, that it was already made. Right. Um, so that was hard to figure out. Yeah, yeah. We have to go back to this weird job that you had. Uh, Dracula's <laughs> Widow was a film job that you got very early on in your. This was before the Hudsucker Proxy. Uh, sort of a. It was directed by Christopher Coppola. Mm -hmm. What was it about? Well, the name says it all. Dracula's <laughs> Widow. It was about. <laughs> The uh, the wife of Dracula who had lost him, uh, you know, because he got the old stake through the heart and she was a vampire and she was coming back to avenge his his death. This so was, it was kind of sexy, kind of horror. Yeah, sort of kind a of a pulp B-movie, um, never tried to be anything other than a, a pulpy B-movie with uh, Lenny Von Dolan was the lead male and Sylvia Christel played Ms. Dracula. Uh, she was a very sexy actress in the 60s and 70s and then in the late 80s she played this role. Um, and what were you doing? I That was actually the first film job I got in Wilmington. Um, I had been working at uh, Encore magazine here in town, writing film reviews and feature articles about the studio, trying to do anything I could to get a job in the film industry. Um, and I got hired as a location assistant. And... It was this was the very early days of filmmaking in Wilmington, where there was no union affiliation. Everybody kind of pitched in, and especially on a, 
a low-budget project like this just it was a gang of us making a movie so I did everything on that show from uh, some puppeteering I, I mean I was a location assistant I was supposed to like knock on doors and hand out flyers and you know make sure there was water access at locations but I wanted to do everything I wanted to operate the camera and do special effects and anything everything so they let me do a lot of stuff and including including puppeteering for little baby bats that had just been born somehow from the widow of dracula which is kind of like acting yeah maybe <laughs> okay puppetry acting and and at a certain point there was a scene involving a stripper who was strapped down to a steel table and I was somehow selected to be the one in charge of icing her nipples to make sure that they were hard during the scene. And, and I thought, I made it. <laughs> They're actually paying me to do this. I like the movie business. <laughs> That's this edition of Coastline. Matt Sullivan, what a pleasure it's been to have you with us. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thanks also to Joe D'Alessandro and the North Carolina Filmmaker Series. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. <laughs>